So for the next six weeks, we're going to walk through the book of Jonah. We're going to begin today, and we're only going to read the very first three verses. So there's ways in which today will be very similar uh, as it is to every single Sunday where we open the Bible, we go, hey, what does this say? Oh, this makes us love Jesus more, and we get excited about that. Okay, that's, that's, we exalt him, we consider him, we look to him, we trust in him. That's what we do every time we open the Bible. But there are going to be parts of this, I think just to... to if we're going to faithfully let this speak to us, I think there's some components in our, our present reality and in the course of history and in our present culture that ought to be considered if we're really going to think that God might be pointing to something greater that means something for us this week. So beginning in verse 1, the book of Jonah. Was I right? Page 502, someone with a paperback Bible, correct? I misled someone. This is, otherwise, it's not going to be helpful. So here we go. Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. My prayer is that as we begin to open this book, we dig into ancient truths. We don't want to stumble into anything new and creative. Instead, we want to dig deeply into something that's timeless and ancient. It begins to speak to us and shape us. So in these three verses, as they open our eyes to the story of this man named Jonah, a prophet, a man with a message, a man called by God to do and to say something for the benefit of God's people, we, I think, are stumbling on something that will help us under, understand every single aspect of life. In these first three verses, you have a template for the entire narrative of the Bible you have a template that I would argue, and I, that's what I want to push on today. You have a template for understanding literally everything in the world. All of the answers under this framework begin to come clear. I really believe this. And so I want to, as we prepare to walk through the story of Jonah, I want to prepare you to see something bigger. Now this is where most of the time when we open a book like Jonah, if you've, if you've been around the church for very long, uh, the first thing that pops in your head is because this makes an awesome children's story is this great, this great fish. This massive fish swallows a man, spits him out. We're going to talk more and more about that in the weeks to come, okay? But for you specifically, and, and Jonah sets an example here, if you think you understand Jonah, maybe you've heard the story of Jonah before, maybe you have kind of the, uh, the religious understanding of the story of Jonah, you have an idea about it, I want to ask you, at least temporarily, to put that on hold. To pretend you've never read it. And assume that you might have misunderstood it. And here's why. The story of Jonah is about all of reality. It explains the forces at work in the world. And it explains specifically these things through a case study of a man, a highly religious man, a man called by God, equipped by God to know what is right and wrong and to speak on these things, and he completely misses it. 
And so I want to invite you into the same thing. Is it possible there's something here that's deeper, that's greater? And I want to kind of boil this down into to hopefully the least common denominator that I can possibly do it. You see two parts of these three verses that be, help us to understand all of the Bible and all of the world. The word of the Lord comes. That's the first thing we see here. And the second thing that happens, Jonah flees. So the, the basis right now of, of the narrative is built on right here, these two things. God speaks to Jonah. Jonah goes away. God speaks. Jonah runs. The Lord speaks. Jonah runs. So here we go. If you want to, grab a Bible or, or Google this or make a note of this. You can go all the way back to the first book, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Beginning there, it says that there's a beginning to these things and that God is the beginning. So we read here in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God set everything in motion. There is a God here that we're called to believe in that has sovereign reign over everything, control over everything. Everything that is, is designed by Him. Every hair of your head is known by Him. Every good and bad thing that's ever happened was known by Him. He started it all. He created the heavens and the earth. It says the earth, before God created, was without form. It was in chaos. It was void. There was darkness, it says, and that darkness was over the face of the depths, or the deep. The darkness was hovering over the chaos of water is what we find here because the spirit of god now we see was hovering over the face of that water verse three here we go you ready and then god said so nothing chaos void separation from like this chaos and any love and compassion or justice of god and then something happens God speaks. And when God speaks, his word changes everything. It brings from nothing, something. It brings from chaos, order. It, it brings from destruction and brokenness and disarray, beauty. It brings function. It, it, it brings this thing that we now call life that sustains you and me. So we believe here God said this. Verse 3, God said, let there be light. And then what happened? There was light. God speaks, this happens. This is how God works. And here, just skip through the rest of the text. Verse 6. If, if your Bible's kind of got some little paragraph indentions there, this will be helpful for you. You can see it. Verse 6, and God said. Verse 9, and God said. Verse 11, and God said. Verse 14, and God said. Verse 20, and God said. Verse 24, and God said. Verse 26, and God said. So you got to get this. Whenever the Bible uses repetition to grab your attention, it's, it's subtly implying that you don't remember things very well. It's just nicely saying, I know you're going to forget this. So just listen, okay? And so that's why different phrases and themes show up regularly in the Bible. And it's the, I believe this is God's mercy to you and to me who, are re who regularly forget things that are fairly important. Right? So don't forget, God speaks. God speaks, God speaks, God speaks. That's where life comes from. That's where light comes from. Before God speaks, there's nothing of value. God speaks. And even, it says here, the last thing he speaks is to create people. So God speaks, stuff happens. God speaks, things come to life. 
And then the crowning achievement of God speaking is to display His image to the world by creating people. So it says in verse 27, God created man or humanity, Adam here, humanity in His own image. In the image of God, He created Him. Male and female, He created them. There's something that God wants to display in the world about his character and he's entrusted it to humanity. It says, and God blessed them and he gives them a commandment, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful, be like me, bearing my image fruitfully. Multiply, make more image bearers. This is, do this, subdue the earth. And all of this is good. God speaks it into existence and it's good. And then he speaks another thing. He, he says one more thing. God speaks God said, did you catch that? He says, now, of all these things that I've given you, I've given you everything that you need. I've given you everything that you desire, the ability to live, but there was a place in the midst of the garden, a tree, a tree for which they were forbidden to eat. He says, don't do that. Well, you know what happens next. So, Chapter 3, we see, remember remember we said, God said, God said, God said, God said. This is a theme. Don't forget it. You're going to forget it. I promise you, you'll forget it. The word of the Lord comes, life comes out of it. You're going to forget it, but seriously, stop forgetting it. God speaks. Because here's what's happened in in chapter 3, beginning of verse 1. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Catch this. And he says to the woman, this is powerful. First words, did God actually say, first thing he utters, right? Remember this, you're going to forget this, I promise you. God speaks light, God speaks life, God, sun, moon, stars, galaxies, nebulas, all of it, God, expanding universe, crazy, all of it. God speaks, it happens. God speaks, it happens. And then the first thing apparently the enemy says is like, did he though? Did he really Did God actually say, anytime anyone uses the word actually, myself included, you should be afraid. It's like something they're parsing out here that may be helpful, but maybe not. What did he actually say? And then you get it. Because you realize that the story of the Bible isn't just that Jonah even flees. The story is this, God speaks and people run and hide. This is our tendency. This chapter 3 theologians called the fall, or it's just this, this breaking point where, where sin enters and death results. God speaks, and the sun obeys, the moon obeys, the stars obey. All of the created order obeys. It is held together by His Word. All of it does exactly what God commands it to do, except who? You and me. Here's what I would say. When you begin to understand this like fundamental trend in the whole of the universe, in the whole entirety of the Bible, what you have, I believe, is a framework for understanding everything. Begin to make sense of the world. And our tendency, we find, in the third chapter, man, just right in. God made it. He said it. It's good. And the first thing, the first thing that the people questioned, did God really say that? Is is it really? Does God really say things like that? Is his word really true? Does it really apply to me? Does it really hold the universe in place? Do I really have to listen to it? It's the first thing. 
And when God says it, calls it good, makes it all come to life, we find here that the first inclination of human beings is to say, I doubt that. So there's a couple things here. The first thing is I hope you're encouraged by that. I hope that like you, you, you feel a little set free to have doubt, skepticism, to ask hard questions, uh, because you, in a some sense you're kind of living in, in I think, in relation to your, your fundamental orientation, to, to kind of go, what's really going on here? And you, you have room to join in all of humanity. But, but there's a second thing that I think that it brings, it kind of challenges us and, and demands, what do you really believe then? You, you see, what I'll say for the rest of the time in the book of Jonah and the rest of the time that we get together and open the Bible, we'll refer to the Bible, what we think is God's revealing himself to us in creative, innovative, all sorts of ways. Right? So if you're, inclined, if you're like OCD and you're inclined to understand things in terms of order, in terms of, in terms of rules to follow, and you want to understand what God is like in terms of justice and not, and not, and not injust, injustices and chaos, there's books for this, right? The book of Leviticus is just for you. You're like, what's God like? Well, he's orderly. And, there is, and the character of God is visible in literally everything you do, every ritual you have, every single thing. This is who God is. So if that's your, maybe you're an engineer, you're a scientist, what, what, you're a ma- mathematician. God's wired you beautifully and speaks to you in orderly ways. Do this, don't do this. Do this, don't do this. So if you're like OCD and you're like, well, I don't understand who God is. He's like, no, it's very clear. This is who God is, this is not, okay? But maybe you're on the other side of the spectrum. Maybe you're more free-spirited, you're creative, you're an innovator, you're, you're an artist, and an order of things just annoys you, and you don't like them, and, and, you, and that, that bothers you. Well, guess what? God reveals his character through different narratives, stories about people like you and me who encountered God. And so maybe the order of like seeing who God is and who we are kind of frustrates you. Well, here's the beautiful thing. We, we have in the entirety of God's revelation, his character through narrative, through stories of people that you'll probably relate to a great deal. And reveals these things. It is an authoritative text. And so if you find yourself thinking, well, I don't trust the Bible, or I, I don't see it as an authoritative text, well, then one of the key questions that we can do that I think is most helpful as we think through Jonah and all of the stories of life is this. Okay, if this isn't authoritative, then what is? Here's what I, here's what I think I know. Uh, I, I watch this in people. You have a sacred text. You live according to a sacred code, a sacred text. But here's the problem. You probably aren't even aware of it. And I know this because some of the most powerful narratives and things that shape our society, things that you know, you could finish the sentence. You believe it. But one of the best things we can do is ask questions like, who taught you that? Where'd you learn that? I, I see this. I see this across the board. I just, you know, even recently, I, I, I'm talking to to people um, fighting through health in their marriage, and and words come up, and 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 they and they're quoted like sacred text. You've seen some of these, right? Heard somebody say, in the context of marriage, I, just, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. And it's it's almost like they, it's almost like they were quoting like a sacred text. Like. And it's good you ask, okay, hey, who taught you that? You clearly believe it. You didn't ask about it. You, you declared it. Dare I say, I'm going to put these words into your mouth. You preached it. 
You straight up preached this sacred text. Who taught you that? And what, what I find is most of the time, the sacred text that's like bubbling out of us is things that the culture has taught us, things that you've been ingrained, like ingrained into you, that you believe them, and you don't even know it. So here, here's what I, I want to push back on you. If you find yourself on a regular basis, we open the Bible and say, this has authority, this speaks truth, and you find yourself pushing back on that, that's fine. But what's your sacred text? What do you really believe? What really informs your opinion? Right? Things that, things that are just accepted to be true, right? Somebody can say something like, YOLO. Almost authoritatively. Right? How, and and um, half of you know what I'm talking about. How, how insane are we? Like, this is a weird sacred text, isn't it? There's a, and there's these strange narratives kind of undergirding everything that you currently do. Can you think of them? Can you think of little bitty things that people quote authoritatively? Can you think of those things that, that when it really, when push comes to shove, that's what you rely upon? That's what you fall back on? That's where you go? Can you think of them? The Lord helps those who help themselves. Can you think of them? Little things that we believe. Because even if you don't see, here's what I would push on you, the Lord speaking authoritatively here, then it's on you to explain what is authoritative. Now here's what we do. We consider the possibility that this is actually a word from God. Um, we really believe that there is a divine aspect to this. There's a divine aspect to these things. And as we consider that, it means something different. So as a regular occurrence, one of the best things that we can do, and this is the part where this is going to be a little different than normal, um, one of the best things we can do on a regular basis is when we're not quoting the Bible, we're at least demanding that people cite their sources if they're quoting another one. Right? Like if I stand, on, on a regular basis, if I stand up here and I'm saying, I think you should do this, right? There's a sense in which even you, you should, don't, you should not take my word for it. You should go like, where's he getting that? Oh, that's, if you turn with me to the book of second opinions here, this is, the, <laughs> you seen this? Because I, I, here's what I want to push, like this, this, is, this is going to be how we understand the world. People asserting authoritative texts, assort, authoritative beliefs upon one another. And the people, and this, this is going to blow your mind, the people who get the maddest about you asserting the authority of the Bible are author asserting their authoritative text. They just don't know where they found it. They're like, it's not right of you to push your beliefs on me. And I'm like, I could be wrong, but that felt like you pushing your beliefs on me. And I, I, don't, I don't debate those things well because my head explodes. And I'm like, they're like... You shouldn't preach at me. And I'm like, that felt rather preachy. I could be wrong. So here, here's what I want to push on you. The current narrative is that like all things in a postmodern world, right? We're living in this place where the, the assertions of modernity have kind of been undermined. And now we live in a world of postmodernity where the question is actually more valuable than the answer. And every question is valid. Every, and this is, this is ironic because they're like, there's no one truth, which... That's a truth claim, right? Have you heard this? Like, all ways are valid. That is a narrow way of seeing ways. And here's what I want to push back on you. It's not new. It's not new. 
And as we begin to think about what it means to to be shaped by an authoritative text, Jonah, I think, gives us, it's like a cipher to understand the world. And I just don't want to be shy about it. I want to push back and say the word you're currently believing, it might be wrong. But this digs deeper. So maybe if you're in the room and you are a Christian, okay, maybe this resonates with you. So then here's the question I ask for you. All right. What is God's word to you? If God speaks and life happens, what is God's word to you? What is God presently speaking and saying to you? And if you don't have a good answer to that, friend, you've subscribed to a sacred text that says that God doesn't speak to people. And I would ask you, who taught you that? And it, it wasn't scripture. And I would come back to you and say, the word of the Lord says, the word of the Lord brings life. God speaks and life happens. His word is where this happens. Because the second thing that happens, if, if God's word speaks, we see this, let's walk through this just briefly, what happens next? So, so let's break down what that even means. Thus, uh, or excuse me, we, uh, as you look at here, like there's, we've got to do some math here. We've got to do some, um, some, some geography it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. That phrase there, the word of the Lord came, this is a common phrase. If you want, I mean, you could turn to the beginning of almost every single uh, prophet, Jeremiah. Uh, you see this elsewhere. I'm, I'm going to just turn the page over, and I wonder if it's in Micah. Oh, yeah, turn the page. I was going to send you to Jeremiah. That wouldn't have been helpful. Turn the page to the book, the, another minor prophet, Micah. Did you catch the first phrase there? The word of the Lord came to Micah. And every prophetic text starts this way, that the word comes. God is not up there and out there, but God actually communicates in different ways through each prophet. We saw this last year. We walked through the book of Hosea. God spoke through to Hosea and said, the word you're going to speak isn't just going to be uh, words on a page. It, they're going to be your life. And he says, to demonstrate my faithfulness to my people, he commands Hosea to go and to marry a prostitute. He says, go and marry a prostitute and then have a family with her. Such that people will wonder, are these children really Hosea's? And when you begin to see the fruit of unfaithfulness and you demonstrate love so powerfully to this prostitute who keeps cheating on you, then you'll begin to understand the word of God to his people, a faithful word to people who are unfaithful to him, right? That's what we saw in Hosea. We see it elsewhere. And now we find in Jonah a very different story. There's, there's very little prophecy that he specifically speaks, but the prophecy that he does speak is in the context of the story of this prophet. And God speaks to him, and through him we see here by the ways that he responds to what God tells him to do. So this is common. This tells us something about Jonah. Jonah is called by God. When the word of the Lord comes to this person, he would have been set aside as a prophet. People would have known this. We see this in the book of 2 Kings. We find out that Jonah knows what he's doing. He should know better. And so he's sent then. He says, arise, literally get up. It's like this picture of haste. It's not just like God says, okay, at, when, when you get ready, go do this. He says, right now, drop what you're doing, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So he's, he's called to speak something about the injustice there, about the, 
something that's going on in that city, something we've come to find out later, but the violence that existed in that city was detestable to God, and he sends Jonah to go, this best we know how here, to somehow speak to this great city. There wasn't social media or any sort of technology to make it happen, so he's like, go, you get in there, find who you can talk to, positions of authority, who knows, speak out against what's going on. Verse 3, buts. But Jonah says, remember he said, get up, get up and go. What does it say here in verse 3? But Jonah says he got up, indeed he did, he did arise quite quickly to do what? To flee, to Tarshish, away from, what a powerful phrase here, away from the presence of the Lord, literally away from the face of God. He wanted to escape the face of God. So I want you to begin to see exactly what we're looking at here, all right? This is, this is pretty powerful. Um, so if we're looking at a Google Maps version of this, we find this is the Mediterranean Sea, this large body of water. This is the northern chunk of Africa. You see bits of Spain, the southernmost tip of this part of Europe. And, and this would be over here, kind of where we'd understand to be Palestine, right? right? Jerusalem would be about right here. And then you start to get the, the names and places that are listed on this map. Did you catch it? So Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, okay, from the face of the Lord. He says he went down to Joppa, presumably probably from Jerusalem or someone in, somewhere in the middle of Palestine, down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish or Tarshish. He paid the ferry and went down, and he got in it. So he was called to go to Nineveh. Nineveh, one of the two greatest of the cities of the Assyrian Empire at that time. This is probably about the 8th century BC. Okay, this is eight centuries before Christ was born. And we find here that, that Jonah is commanded to go to Nineveh. This is a, would have been a, a massive city we come to find out later in this text. An important city, a historic city. We even find that Nineveh, we have traces of Nineveh. Um, the archaeologists go back up to 4,000 years before Jesus. So this is a great city that's come and gone, risen and fallen with different people coming along, and he's commanded to go there. And just look, in terms of distance and direction, I I don't know how to say this, you kind of messed up, right? Just oops. Um, Now, here's I want to point out some of the objections that are raised here. Um, Now, we know Saul of Tarsus. Do you remember this name that shows up in the book of Acts? A prominent man who becomes the Apostle Paul. He's from Tarsus, which is right up here. Uh, And some people say that Tarshish was actually Tarsus. And they say, well, he wasn't really going in the opposite direction. I just push, push back on that. Even if he got in a boat to go over here, okay, so maybe he wasn't going that way. He went 90 degrees in the wrong direction. Okay? As it stands, he's what, 150 degrees in the wrong direction? And he hears the word of the Lord clearly, knows exactly where he used to go, and he used to go quickly, and instead he quickly goes the opposite direction. The far side, the far side of the Mediterranean, the southernmost tip, around the southernmost tip of Spain. You begin to realize it, right? Catch this. God speaks. People go, nah. God says go. People say, I'd rather not. They fundamentally find their identity somewhere other than in what God says. God says. God brings life. God brings light. Where there's nothing, God brings beauty. Where there was death, God brings life. God speaks and good things happen. 
And our fundamental response is to say, I doubt that. So the coming word here, the, this identity that, G, that, excuse me, that Jonah was called to have here, evidently is undermined by something under the surface. Now he has purpose and identity. The word of the Lord comes to him. That would have represented his calling and purpose as a prophet. But there's something else that happens. Something happens. And there's a, here's what I would argue, like the deepest secret of our identity the deepest secret of our identity is one of the most important places to think on and to consider. And if the deepest secret of our identity isn't ultimately in what God says, what God does, it's not at the foot of the Lord, then something else will happen and destruction almost always is the result. Jonah decides that he wants to see what it's like to find identity apart from God and what God says. And he tries to build an identity without God. There's a couple different ways I think I, I kind of illustrate this. I'm going to call in some resources here that may, you don't necessarily need to read these, but, but they, they're helpful for me when I think about the ways in which some of these things are played out. So one of the, one of the great authorities on this in the contemplating sin, uh, a man by the name of, a Danish philosopher by the name of Soren Kierkegaard. I don't recommend everything he said, but in 1849, he published a work called The Sickness Unto Death. It actually has a longer title, which makes me love them all the better, but for our purpose, The Sickness Unto Death. And his goal wasn't to just like make a list of all sorts of sins that lead to death. His goal was to, if you could dig down under every sin, and there's one sickness because remember, sin resulted in death beginning in Genesis chapter 3. If you could dig down into one thing, what would it be? And he says it this. He's like, there's uh, at least two different types of despair. And they're the essence of sin. One is when you try to find yourself. Sin, when you try to discover yourself or, or get or obtain a sense of self apart from God. Right? So like, if without God, you, you find yourself. When you try to find yourself without God, it's a despair. The result is despair from this sin. But also, there's a deeper despair when what happens, apparently, when you actually succeed in being yourself apart from God. When you actually succeed at being the person you assert yourself to be apart from God, you see, anyone who tries to get their identity without God, it says here, quote Kierkegaard, they gain an identity which is like being a king without a country. Do you get that? So like to assert an identity apart from what God says is like to call yourself a king, right? To say, this is who I am, to put on the crown, to prance around, and yet in reality, to have no kingdom, to have no royalty, he says, secondly, when you, when you do this, it's not only like a king who has no country, but it's, if maybe if you don't believe him and you think you have a country, he says that it's like being a king in which all the subjects of the kingdom are ready for rebellion, legitimate rebellion at every single moment. So you're a king, great. You actually are in charge of your world. How's that working out for you? How are your plans playing out for you? Are you exactly where you thought you would be? And this is important because this is under the, under the fabric of our culture, isn't it? The, des the desire for esteem. The desire for a word authoritatively to give us value. 
But here's the catch, and this is the new experiment for the last 30 to 50 years. The concept of self-esteem. The concept that you can actually gain an authoritative word that grants you value and you find it within yourself. That what you can say about yourself will ultimately give you value and remove the despair. The phrase that's probably the most common in the last uh, few years is the phrase self-identify. You, you hear that? Did you hear that identity language? Did you hear that identity? Remember, this is, what does God say? God says you're this. You're my image bearer. And the first temptation in Genesis 3 was what? Is that really who we are? Did God really say that? You see the identity language here. Jonah, a prophet. We know he, we know he knows better. But there's identity language here, isn't there? It says he got up and against his better judgment, against who he knew or we thought he was, he runs and takes his identity to someplace else. Because to find your own value in yourself is a, is a desperate thing. It's a desperate place to be. You're empty and so you seek fulfillment and you look inside of yourself. But I thought you were empty. How are you going to find fulfillment in the place where you currently feel emptiness. So there's a couple of different resources now. So that, that's more of like a Christian perspective on this. Uh, that's more of a, a Christian dynamic here. But, but there's another one here that uh, a man by the name of Ernest Becker, he published, uh, uh, it was, it's called The Denial of Death. A prominent atheist psychologist got a Pulitzer Prize for this book in 1974. And in fact, it's one of the most important things uh, that's probably written uh, in, in the last 40 to 50 years about the sense of self and identity. Now, I referenced it several times when we walked through the book of Ecclesiastes because Ecclesiastes calls us to think upon death. And Becker says that the most important thing that happens in the human brain, the, the, the most important factor when we think about human psychology is the angst that you feel because of death. And so you either try to hide it, avoid it, not talk about it. And his, he, he just kind of goes on and on. He even quotes Kierkegaard here. Um, strange, but he, he goes on and on about the quest for fulfillment and meaning is either to deny and ignore death or to somehow feel like you've conquered it. And so here's what he says. He says, the plight of the modern man is that there's something broken. And since there's no more religious language, he says, the plight of the modern man is this. An awareness of sin with no name for it. There's a brokenness. There's a brokenness that every single person feels. Every person is aware of. Deep down, they're after some sort of peace and some sort of fulfillment for this brokenness. Becker says that it's, it's an awareness of death, that this is going to end soon. And he says that there's a category here that these people no longer have. They've dispensed with, they've outgrown religious categories. And so they have this understanding and feeling of sin, but they don't know what to call it. As a result, when you don't know what to call it, you don't know how to fix it. And anyone and anything could be a possible solution. I think we find that here. Jonah, knowing what God has called him to be, knowing the word that's spoken to him, has an identity crisis. Knowing what he ought to do, he begins to lean on another authoritative text. He begins to seek an identity apart from that which God had given them. 
He begins to seek a sense of purpose and contentment, a sense of self from something other than God. And did you catch that sense of angst? Did you catch that? Did you see what he did? Not only did he try to seek another identity, but did you know where he went? It says he, he tried as hard as he could, an omnipresent God, which he would have known. Two different times in this text, it shows up elsewhere. He fled from where? The presence of God. So here's my question. Series of questions. Who are you? What do you currently believe about who you are at your core? What is your identity? Who are you really? Who are you? Because one of two despairs will happen apart from finding that identity in what God freely gives to us and speaks to us by giving light to dark places and life to dead places. Two kinds of despair, Kierkegaard says, will happen. You'll either despair of yourself before God because you'll, you'll assert yourself and you'll be in despair because it won't measure up. Or, like Jonah, you'll despair to the point where you'll try to find identi- identity apart from God. You'll flee. You'll run. Now this is powerful because the word sin is a fundamental theme in the Bible and the word sin never shows up in the book of Jonah. It never shows up. And that's because, here's what I would argue, sometimes the word sin is unhelpful. It can be used to harm people. Uh, People don't like to think in those categories because there's times where people have used the word sin in a way to dehumanize and and to to harm people. If you're unfaithful, right, you, you are sinful. And that can be used with harsh motives. We're seeing this right now. You can call somebody in places in the world right now an infidel. And by doing so, that gives you a lot of permission to do a lot of awful things to them. So it's right to kind of be weary when we use words like unfaithful or sinful or rebellious. And Jonah gives us a really powerful thing here. He doesn't say he sinned. It just tells us what sin actually looks like. It's finding your identity apart from God. And the despair that results either by by actually finding it and it doesn't measure up or running from God and finding loneliness. Either way, it's a failed attempt. And so we ask, who is Jonah? No, really. Who is Jonah and why is he not following God? It causes us to ask, what is his core center? And we ask Jonah, who taught you that? Cite your sources. Because unless you come to grips, there really is a competition being waged around you and in you for the central core of your life until you come to grips that there are actually forces waging against you to tell you who you are. There are authoritative texts preaching and teaching and declaring things that they say are true over your life until you recognize that. You'll just assume to be true whatever you get your hands on. And honestly, you will not know your real heart. And you won't know who you are. Here's what I was, some of the greatest confusion that some of you feel right now stems from this right here. You don't know who God is. You have no idea what he's said about you. And therefore, since you don't know who you are, you have no idea what to do. And you're really frustrated. Because you're like, how do I figure out how I am? And you know what the culture tells you? It says look inside yourself. Go on a journey and find yourself. 
So the culture gets it. The culture feels it. It knows it's there. And you feel it too. And the problem is, every single word that you're being bombarded with is telling you to look inside your own despair to find happiness. Look inside your empty and sad self to find contentment and meaning. Friend, that's not a solution. That is a treadmill that will end you in, as we saw, a very meaningless life. We look apart from ourselves. Jonah ran, and he experienced a crisis. And instead of going to the place that God had called him and being who God had called him to be, he rebelled. So here's how I want to wrap up. I want to wrap up, I think, with a sense of sympathy, and I want to look at the word I think God's word speaks to us, and then if I can, just kind of like shout that at you louder than the culture is currently shouting out who you really are. First thing I want to be uh, is very sympathetic to Jonah, okay? The temptation would be to say, um, I know better than Jonah. Um, but if, if we look here at, this is, the, co- the colors here show what the Assyrian Empire would have looked like. Jonah is going into Nineveh, the greatest city in Syria. Um, so if you zoom out, you see the Mediterranean Sea, the, the, the light color would have been uh, the Assyrian Empire as it finally began to exert influence. Now this is powerful. This is one of the, historians tell us, this is the first modern empire. This is the very first modern empire that ever existed. To actually successfully, for generations, have enduring power and authority over other, other nation states. Up to that point, city-states kind of ruled themselves. You see this in the Old Testament. You have tribes warring and exerting influence over one another, but, but no one really gets a foothold until the Assyrians. And you see the darker green is where this would have started. This is the core, uh, this core area where the Assyrians would have had power as it was growing in the time of Jonah. If you zoom in just a little bit closer, you'll see at the center of this place, the center of this map, there's a little red dot. Uh, it's, it's the best I could do, but I've got to just kind of walk over the center of this green spot. And you got to look. Here's the Euphrates River. Here's the Tigris River. And right where the Tigris splits, this little red dot is the city of Nineveh, a massive city right on the Tigris River, right on the Tigris. And he's called to go there and to boldly declare to this massive city, what you're doing is wrong. You are not believing the right authoritative text. And we're tempted to kind of say, well, I would have done better. Or we're tempted to not sympathize with Jonah. And I, I want to, as best I can, remove this for you. Now, if you know any of your Middle Eastern geography, which I bet you don't, This is what is now modern-day Iraq. And I encourage you to learn a little bit about this place. It's fairly important. The Bible has a lot about it. Kind of a big deal. And a lot of important events, good and bad, happen there on a regular basis. Google it, okay? Right there, if you you zoom in on Google, I encourage you to do this. Uh, If you want, you can grab your Google Maps right now and just look at the, the city that now exists over the top of Nineveh right over the top of that great city. You can Google it. Open up your Google Maps. It's a city of Mosul. Mosul. Mosul, Iraq. I dare you to just Google the word. I didn't even look at it today. Google the word Mosul and then look under categories of news and see what the most up-to-date events are happening in the city of Mosul. This is a, city, this is a picture taken last week. This is Mosul. This is Mosul. This is a city that is now being 
It's the, it's the center of a battle being waged against ISIS and everybody who wants to kick out ISIS, whether it's Kurds or, you know, I mean, it's like, this is, I, I don't want you to lack sympathy for Moses. I mean, excuse me, for Jonah. I, I, I'm saying to you here, like, if God came to you right now and said, hey, here's what I need you to do. I need you to drop what you're doing. I need you to go to this great city. That one, Mosul. And I need you to tell the people there that are in control. You guys are doing the wrong thing. You better stop. God's mad at you. Yahweh, the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, he doesn't like what you're doing. I dare you to do that. Don't actually do that. I, I don't want to be in trouble for that. That's, I think you wouldn't make it through customs. They wouldn't let you. So here's what, I don't want you to be unsympathetic towards Jonah. I want you to realize that what God calls us to do will require a radical sense of identity to be obedient. He will have to speak something to us, powerful, for us to be willing to obey him. He will have to speak a word, a word that would transform us and change us if we are to do and be who he has called us to be. And so I want to speak that word to you. If you want to skip with me to John chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, but then John tells us a story about Jesus. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he was in the beginning do you remember that i don't know if you got that how did everything start god said and then he said he spoke and he said 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 so that you wouldn't forget so you remember it so that when you stumble upon the good news according to john we find here that god has been speaking this word he was in the beginning with god all things were made through him get this idea god brings life through his word Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so right now we think he's talking about Genesis, God creating light and life. But in verse 9, it tells us that, in fact, the true light, which gives life to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And then we come to realize that in verse 14, the word that he's speaking of, the word that brings light to darkness, brings life to death, is Jesus. It says he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. It sounds like, no, it sounds like Jonah right here, right? I'm listing every possible Bible character other than Jonah. It says his own people did not know him or receive him. And just like us, we hear God's word and believe something else. But I want you to hear the word that God speaks. Verse 12, John chapter 1, it says, But to all who did receive him, this word, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. They were born not of blood, nor by the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but they were born of God. Friend, hear this good news. The word that God speaks, the word that he speaks is not a word of crushing judgment. It's not a word of shame and guilt. The word that he speaks finally and completely to you and to me in Jesus is the word of good news. It's a word of life. It is light in darkness. 
It is life where there once was death. It is joy where there once was weariness. So friend, here, would you join me in considering the possibility that this good news is in fact the word that God speaks to you and to me. Psalm 139 puts it this way, and I'll wrap up on this. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, Jonah, got it? Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall overcome me, you hear the words of John? And the light about me would be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. The darkness is as light with you. Friend, this is a word that changes everything. It brings light to darkness. It gives life to dead things. And it gives us a new identity. An identity given to us by grace, even in spite of being fleeing people who run apart and question God's authoritative word so that you would remember that God has sent a reminding word so that you would not forget God's word to you. He didn't allow Adam and Eve to be the last story of the Bible. It would have been for me. If I was God, that would have been it. Hey, you're good. And then they rebel. Oh, forget this, I'm out. But it wasn't the last story of the Bible. So that you would know that his word, his enduring word for you, is a word of mercy, reconciliation, adoption into his family. He did not remain silent and leave you in darkness and death. He spoke a word, a final word, a word we found out that became at, actually was at there, it was there with God in the beginning, and a word that when you begin to believe it, gives a, a new identity, a new joy. Friend, you want esteem. I know it. I know you want someone to say something good about you. You wish people would say you're great. You wish you could be famous. You wish the people, maybe even your own parents who have neglected you, you wish they would be proud of you. You wish they would esteem you. You wish your boss would value you. You wish your spouse would, would think you're awesome. And you're looking for esteem in so many places. And I want to tell you from the very beginning, whether you're Jonah or just you trying to find your identity apart from God, from the very beginning, God has been speaking a word and he gives you great esteem. Friend, if, if I told you you were a good basketball player, you wouldn't, no one would believe me because I'm no good. But if LeBron James stood up here and said, this guy's a good basketball player, you, you, you'd believe him. You'd think, well, that's amazing. That's amazing esteem. Friend, you're looking for esteem and the power and creator in all of the universe, the almighty God, has granted you a greater esteem than anyone could ever fathom or know. And it changes everything. Where are you running? What are you chasing? What are you seeking? And maybe I just have the audacity to ask, how's that working for you? How's that working? Is it possible that God's called us to believe a better word, to follow a greater Noah? Consider the possibility that God can take what's dead and bring it to life. So here's why I just want to celebrate the ways this is happening. I don't want to uh, end thinking this. I want to challenge you with this, but I want to celebrate how this is happening. And I want to ask, uh, if, you don't, if you don't want to participate in this, you don't have to, but uh, I just want to thank God for it, and then we're going to celebrate the gospel in song. But um, 
again, if this freaks you out, just ignore me, all right? You're allowed to ignore the next little bit I'm going to say, but if you were in this room three years ago, the, like that Easter we got together, it was different. We were like over here. The stage was little, and there was just a few chairs. If you were, if you were here three years ago, that Easter, would you just raise your hand? Yeah. Now, these people are not celebrities, okay? In a lot of ways, they're not that bright, okay? <laughs> I mean, like, what? We're, we're going to do what? I mean, but there's not very many. And it's possible that God's word is doing something. Here's another question I have for you. Three years ago, um, I guess I I had to word this as carefully as possible. If you consider yourself a Christian, you've believed this word, but three years ago or more, like three years ago, you didn't believe this word, would you raise your hand? Like in the last three years, you now believe the gospel. Some people here. I baptized some of you suckers, so don't sit here, all right? Don't. I will point you out, man. Don't even. Not today. It's a big day. So, is it possible God's doing something? Maybe. Is it possible there's a new word, a new life? Is this something that God's calling into existence here? Where there once was nothing? Where there once was death, there is now life? And I want to encourage you and thank God for the ways in which this has already happened. I can't talk about this a lot because I get all weepy. <laughs> but all I know to tell you is that like, what, what an amazing gift that God has spoken a word and that we get the privilege every single week to think seriously about what that word means to us and how it shapes the way we live and how it changes the city and the possibility that just like Nineveh, our city might get changed by the word that we believe. So would you join me in prayer? We're going to wrap up and celebrate the gospel in song. Would you just pray with me? Uh, God, we thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. Um, even though we, we, we have a lot in common with Jonah, we would rather believe anything but you, uh, we still aren't here. We aren't here celebrating that. We're, we're here remembering that your word is, is truth. It's, it's a word of peace and It's a word of reconciliation. We confess, God, that we would rather find our identity in anything else. Uh, We would rather seek a sense of esteem from anyone else. Would you allow us to, even in these moments, to realize that there is esteem in the name of Jesus? That while we were sinners, you sent Jesus to die in our place. While we were the enemies of God, you sent a miraculous thing to save us. And that miracle makes even believing things that like you could use a fish, a miraculous fish to save a man. And that seems like an easy and small thing to believe when we realize the life that you've brought to dead places here. I thank you that this is happening around us. I pray that we would be faithful to it. I pray that we would be encouraged by it. I pray that as we think about the book of Jonah and the ways that you pursue graciously people who rebel against you that we name ourselves amongst them if there's some in this room maybe they've never considered this to be true would they consider that in the name of jesus there is a word of life and a word of light and that light and life changes everything it's the light of humanity we thank you for this in jesus name amen